were in a band, they were integral to that band somehow. Right. Their their death at twenty seven was notable. Like, exactly. I, I, I hate to I hate to say it like that. Everyone every death is is makes an impact and whatever. But like for the terms of this, I think we're gonna know it when we see it. Oh, of course. And and the twenty seven club is something that's very culturally known. They're they're very specific groups of people. What was interesting to me was just starting to look at and going, Oh, there were quite a few more than I realized were on that list. Yeah, definitely. And so that'll that'll be interesting to see, you know, which way we want to go with that. Absolutely, absolutely. I brought a very James suggestion for the special category. I feel like this could be interesting, or I feel like we could maybe find a different thing to judge. Since we're doing four points, I said every three months that they were away from their 27th birthday. So like the closer to 27 to their 27th birthday they were, the more points you get. I would also be willing to completely toss that out and do something else. So I I thought more broad picture with the idea of how much does this song reflect the wisdom they had beyond the age of 27? I like that a lot better. How, how much potential does this song show, or just how much does this show what they what they foresaw past their age? Right. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. All right, let's do it. everybody welcome back to track meet so we have discussed our topic it is the 27 club and we have two very special guests joining us for that it's jen and micah from i never saw that hi hey hi hi hey i'm so excited (laughs) (laughs) i think we've been talking about this ever since we we put you on the list of guests um yes yeah it's been ages it's been many months, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's see. Who are we going to kick off with today? I'm going to go with Micah. Why don't you start us off this week? What is the song you've picked? I chose Kind-Hearted Women Blues by Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson was an early Delta Blues musician. He didn't invent the Delta Blues, but he was definitely one of the early progenitors of the Delta Blues and shaped all kinds of other musical genres for decades to come, as we will, I'm sure, talk about tonight. He did die at the age of 27, and like many of these deaths that we'll talk about tonight and many of the other members, I guess all of the other members of the 27 Club, it was a tragic and sudden early death. His is steeped in mystery, partly because of the time period that he died so long ago. He died August 16th, 1938 in Greenwood, Mississippi. There aren't a lot of really reliable records. And also because in between the time he was born and the time he died, he built up a lot of legend and other things. So sometime between those two dates, he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads to become the greatest guitar player in the world. And I think we all believe that. We can just move on and leave it there. He only recorded 29 songs in his life. The one I chose tonight is actually the first track he recorded. It was recorded on November 23rd, 1936 in the Gunter Hotel in room 414 in San Antonio, Texas. It was the first song he ever recorded. This track is the only one that has a guitar solo in it of any kind. So I thought that was interesting because other members of the 27 Club are known for their 
guitar prowess as well. And I just really like this song, everything about it, the lyrics, the way he presents the lyrics, the way it's recorded even. It's one of my favorite Robert Johnson songs. Awesome. Cool. Well done. I'll go next. Do it. My song is King of the Hill from Minutemen, released February 1985 on their Project Mersh EP, part of an ironic take on, quote, commercial music, aka Mersh, instead of their normal Econo recording style. Minutemen have always been one of my favorite bands ever since I discovered them from hearing the theme to Jackass and then having to figure out exactly what that song was. Oh. And then going down that rabbit hole of learning about Corona and then finding Double Nickels on the Dime and then finding every other album that these guys did. They became instantly my favorite punk band of all time. It's a trio, D. Boone, the guitarist, who is our unfortunate member of the 27 Club, along with Mike Watt and George Hurley. This is D. Boone's song. He and Watt split writing duties on those. Boone wrote most of their anthemic songs like Corona, This Ain't No Picnic, and This, whereas Mike Watt wrote more of the Stream of Consciousness style songs. All their early work is really like short burst, almost jazzy experimental vibes. And there's a whole thing about their guitar tone where Mike Watt has this really deep, funky bass and D Boone plays this like super trebled out Telecaster. There's no low tones on his guitar whatsoever. And then Hurley is a maddeningly amazing drummer. He was actually a jazz drummer before he got into hardcore punk. And then they all just play off each other in these amazing songs. But later on, they started to get more pop friendly. The biggest thing about Deep Boone and, and the tragedy is that he died on December 22nd, 1985. He was lying in the rear of his van in Arizona after having a fever. Oh. And the rear axle of the van broke. He had no seatbelt on and he was thrown out of the back and died instantly as he fell. Ugh. Oh, man. Whoa. The band immediately broke up, but they reformed other groups, including Firehose. Mike Watt's done tons and tons of music, but to this day, Mike Watt has dedicated his album to like his best friend since childhood. Aww. They were friends since like the age of 11 or 12. Yeah, this episode's a dark one for you guys. Yeah. It's a dark <laughs> one. Welcome to it. It's got a change of sadness. <laughs> the song I specifically chose this one because it's it's representative of their full sound as a band. I love a song like Corona, but it doesn't quite get the feel of that very distinct guitar and bass interplay with the drums. This song really has that, and it's a really fascinating moment of what could have been for this band. Mm. And that's my pick. Cool. Jen, I think we're going to go with you next. I think so, too. Okay. (laughs) So my song is Summertime, as performed by Janis Joplin, as recorded by Janis Joplin, I guess. This song has been recorded over 25,000 times. It was originally written by George Gershwin. He wrote this song originally as an aria for the opera Porgy and Bess. Yep. And wanted it to sound like a spiritual, like an African-American spiritual. So apparently it sounds strikingly similar to a spiritual called Motherless Child. So... Yes, he is credited with writing the song, but we're not sure if he He deserves all the credit. The thing is that Janis Joplin's version of this song is so different. It's like an entirely different song. It has the same lyrics, and you can just kind of barely make out hints of the original melody. 
So I love that about it. I chose this song because on a personal level, I find it the most moving of her songs. And I guess I can talk for a second about how she died. Probably everyone knows, but Janis Joplin also died at the age of 27. October 4th, 1970, she died of a heroin overdose and was found in a hotel room next to her bed, which is very sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's all I really want to say for an intro. Cool. Yeah. All right. I guess that leaves me. Yep. I did the Mars Volta, and my 27 Club member is a guy named Jeremy Michael Ward, who is not someone that you can be like, he was the drummer. Jeremy Michael Ward did soundscapes for the Mars Volta, which is about the most hippie sounding thing you can possibly say. <laughs> um, he was he collaborated with Omar Rodriguez Lopez and Cedric Bixler Zavala, who were the primary members of the Mars Volta. He had been he had done some stuff with them for At the Drive In, which was their previous band. And then the band before that was called De Facto, and that was like a, a dub, a reggae dub band that he was in with Omar Rodriguez Lopez and stuff. And he was a sound technician, basically, who, as far as I could tell, there's not a lot of information. There's not a documentary about like what he contributed, but as far as I can tell, he added sort of the atmosphere to the tracks, specifically on the first full length of Mars Volta called Deloused in the Comatorium. He also helped write the story that that album is based on. After his death, the the second album by Mars Volta was called Francis the Mute, and it was based on a diary that Jeremy found in the back of a car he was repossessing. And it was this long diary about this person's journey to find their biological parents that he found a lot of parallels in his own life. And they wrote an album about that. So that was the second album. And then their third album was called Ampitecture, and he coined that term. So he had a lasting effect on the Mars Volta and the component, you know, Cedric Bixler-Zavala and Omar Rodriguez-Lopez, their lives, even past his death. In fact, he died in uh, of a heroin overdose on May 25th, 2003. He was found in his apartment. In his discography, there's one, two, three, four, five, five albums that he is credited on posthumously. Mm. So, like, oh, he... Wow. I picked the song... <laughs> so there's a 12 minute song on this album that you would think of course that's not the one that i should pick and yet here we are uh it's called cicatrice esp i'm prepared to take some hits on points but i think that this is the best the best song to honor jeremy michael ward's contribution to the mars one so nice. my pick cool. is the centerpiece of Deloused in the Comatorium called Cicatries ESP. All right, on to music. And we're going to start again. Micah, okay. tell us about the music on Robert Johnson and give us your rating. Okay, so for this song, Kindhearted Women Blues, as I mentioned, it's the first song he ever recorded. It's also the only one that has a, a true guitar solo in it. Robert Johnson is known for playing the guitar in a way. So he had a lot of influence later. His recordings that he made were not widely distributed during his life. He probably only, in fact, heard some of them before he died and several of them were not released and he never heard any version of them while he was alive. Some producers and other musicologists tried to track him down in 1938, John Hammond being one of them, because he wanted to put on a show of the Delta Blues in New York City at Carnegie Hall 
he didn't know that this guy was dead. In 1961, Hammond convinced Columbia Records to release an album of Robert Johnson recordings called King of the Delta Blues, and it came out on a British imprint of Columbia Records. And that's why people like Eric Clapton, Led Zeppelin, basically all of classic rock that has blues influence, which is all of rock and roll and music as we know it. (laughs) Right. If you listen to Led Zeppelin and you listen to these old albums, they use his lyrics, they cover his songs. Keith Richards has been quoted as saying, like, he heard these records and he thought, oh, well, this is some guy playing, like, a multi-track recording, like, just (laughs) playing different guitars and double-tracking them and four-tracking them. But it wasn't. He played all of this in one take. He played it into a ribbon mic, and we'll get into some of this in production, but it's also important for music, I think. You can hear he's playing the bass line as he's playing the melody and the guitar solo on the top strings, and he's wearing, in a lot of other songs, he wears a slide on his pinky finger, um, <laughs> and he's doing it all at once in one take into one mic and singing into it as well. Musically, I like this song because it's it really showcases his dexterous guitar skills, The way he sings these lyrics, I just love the way it changes through the song. The way he delivers the lines is so evocative and emotional. And I can see him like kind of shaking his head as he's talking about how uh, she does evil all the time. But really, the guitar is the, the highlight here for me. My rating for this on music, no surprise, is a four. All right. I mean, it's definitely Delta Blues. I like him better on the songs where he's moving a little faster. Mm. The songs that I really like from him are stuff like Crossroad Blues, Traveling Mm -hmm. Riverside Blues, If I Had Possession Over Judgment Day. I I think the problem, and and it could be the production on this one, especially if it's just this first recording, Mm -hmm. I don't hear, at least in the version I had, all of that intricacy of the guitar. Mm -hmm. And on those faster songs, you hear it a lot more. I do love his voice. I love how he's singing, but I, I I'm kind of sitting going, oh, I like the faster stuff. That's the, <laughs> in a lot of ways though, that's the stuff that really hooked the the Claptons of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, all three of those songs, the first two have been legit hits for Cream and Zeppelin, and the last one has become a mainstay for Clapton now. Yeah. All of them, so. I'm going to go with the three. Mm-hmm. It's not my go-to. I don't think it's the best representation of how good he was. All right, Jen. I really like this song because it is very simple, but very masterful. It's one instrument, one voice, one take, the things that he's doing with the guitar and his voice. I think like the first time you listen to it, it just sounds, it sounds really simple and it's just not as simple as it sounds. So I'm giving it a 3.5. I'm going to give it a three and a half as well. Um, I think that it's it's hard. I actually, <laughs> I thought that Robert Johnson was like making music in like 1915, just because, <laughs> I don't know, like old photos or whatever. So like, I think that it's hard when you are the progenitor and the big influencer for people to be like, duh. I mean, that, like, like David said, like sounds like Delta Blues. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But listening to this on headphones and sort of with purpose and repeatedly, um, I mean, like, I know that it was from a kind of a cleaned up recording. It sounded great. And like, I, I, I liked everything you said about like what he's doing with the guitar. And I think that I'm going to give it a three and a half as well. 
And I think that, unfortunately, I think that that's largely a half a point just because I'm like, yeah, acoustic Delta Blues. I mean, yeah, like that's, yes. And like, I, I hate it because it's because it's 2019. Anyways, three and a half. I don't want to, I don't want to sit here and spin my wheels. <laughs> All right. On to Minuteman, King of the Hill. I am going three and a half on this. I have some minor issues. Mostly, man, that intro does, should not be going eight bars. It should be going four. And that outro takes 45 seconds to fade out. <laughs> In all honesty, I think part of it is that they are kind of doing this as a joke to some extent. So I think that's part of where the quality isn't quite there. But I think the other the other side of it is this is a potential transitional moment. Like I view this song as what this band could have gone on to because at this moment they said, "You know what? We're going to do we're going to do a pop album just for the fuck of it." And had D Boone lived and they'd had the time to explore that, you would have heard more songs like this. Mm-hmm. I love how the guitar and the bass play against each other. Mike Watts is one of the most incredible bassists of all time. Like it's insane the, the the speed at which he can play such intricate bass lines. And then D Boone has just this really very high toned, trebly jazzy guitar, and they're kind of weaving in and out of each other the entire song. And then Hurley, like I said, is just a monster on the drums. Like he's a top five drummer for me all time, period. Just because of how good he is on how he can do those fills, keep the rhythm. And at no point are those drums off base. Like he is always on the rhythm the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, I, I, I knew I'd hook this a little bit with James, but that trumpet on the chorus is <laughs> insanely good. Trumpet. Yeah. They have like maybe two or three songs that have ever used the trumpet, but they do it on this song and it's perfection <laughs> in the chorus when it's reaching this anthem level. Mm-hmm. I love Deep Boon's guitar solo. It's better than some solos that'll last like a minute or, f- you know, a minute and a half. And it's basically like 10 seconds because it's just this quick burst in, do a quick guitar solo. And it's very, I mean, that's very much his signature. He'll do a crazy guitar lick for about five seconds mm-hmm. and then jump right back in the song. And that's what the Minutemen would do as solos. Which I so appreciate, by the way. Hey. <laughs> no, I, that was nothing to do with your <laughs> no, song, James. Sure. I love your song, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's got all of that punk rock energy mm-hmm. while being an incredibly solid pop song and i think it's such a good example of where it could have been i wish they'd have just taken the time to polish it up a little bit more so i'm giving it a three and a half micah i really enjoyed listening to the song it's been a minute since i've listened good to the minute men. <laughs> i just came up with that just right now um <laughs> Impressive. But I really appreciate that you picked that. I think now that all our songs are out there, one thing I was really struck by was that we have a song from the 30s, the 60s, the 80s, and the 2000s, which mm-hmm. is amazing to me. And the thing that I really liked about them was that you can see they're totally different styles of songs and different genres, but you can kind of see a through line with all of them. And I really liked listening to all these songs again i honestly i haven't listened to the minutemen for a really long time and of course you've got mike watts bass which stands out and d boone's guitar but for me it was really about the drums the drums on the song are so tight they hold everything together they're so consistent even with the minutemen have this weird thing where they wanted to do everything cheaply and efficiently and quickly the econo thing you talked about before we jam econo but they're like they're so tight 
as a band. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they knew they didn't have time or money to pay for recording space and stuff. So they got in and they did it and they did it fucking well. And for me, it's a three and a half. Jen, your, your score. Okay, it's my turn. Okay, there's a trumpet! Exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> that gets a point for me. I loved that there was a trumpet. I also watched the music video for this. I don't know why, but I did that earlier today. Um, that's when I really became aware of the trumpet because there was a person playing the trumpet. Um, <laughs> I really loved this song. I had not heard it before. I loved the guitar solo and there was also a bass solo. The really good tight drumming, like fast drumming is so I love it so much. Uh, it makes me so happy. And I love the riff in this song, too. It just has a really great fucking riff. And and I described it as punk-ish, which kind of fits with what you were saying. But I gave it a four. I mean, I really, really like this song. All right. Cool. I also had never heard this before. I think the Minutemen, I'm not sure I've heard of them. Sure. I mean, for sure. I really liked it a lot, too. I thought it was very tight. I I listened to uh, great albums, I keep bringing up that podcast, about London Calling today, and then right after that, I did another listen-through of our songs, and it's really interesting to think about the Minutemen in terms of The Clash, because it's like The it's like the Clash, where it's sort of like a producer was knocking on the window, being like, come on, let's speed it up just a little bit. <laughs> yes, 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 you're all very talented, let's, let's get going. <laughs> And they did, and they did it well. Like it, like it doesn't feel rushed. It feels tight but quick and full. Like you know, the Descendants were super fast, and they were similar time. And and as far as I'm aware from my producer research, similar area and label and stuff. But they they have a thin feeling that they have a good that's a good sound for them um, and their content and stuff. But like this feels robust in kind of a fun way, very meaty sort of full musical sort of uh, feeling to it, which I really enjoyed. It's hard when you've only heard one song by a band. Uh, I think I'm going to give it a three and a half because I feel like this feels good, but like it could, Mm. I could see it getting even better on, on other, on other tracks. All right. On to music for summertime. Summertime. It is actually kind of interesting that like, because I feel like David's song, it's such a great example of 1985. And I feel that way about this song as well, because Janice was hugely influenced by blues and jazz, probably hugely influenced by Robert Johnson. And this song is usually recorded as a jazz. I mean, it was originally an aria, which is kind of funny. It's funny to think about it as an aria when you're listening to Janice's version. It's mind boggling how many different ways this song has been recorded. So I I love how it brings that jazz element and blues element in, but it's but it combines it with that very 60s psychedelic rock sound. But I also liked cuz I and I had to listen very carefully for this, but I could hear just hints of the original melody in the guitar. Hmm. Um and in the chord progression. And I actually read a whole article about the chord progression and the way that the emotional impact the song has because of the chord progression. And I don't have details about that because it'd be probably really boring to listen to, but I thought it was really interesting. It opens on a minor chord as well. And so it has darkness in it already, but Janice brings her own darkness as well. I love the opening of the song. I love that building guitar. I, it's, I just think it's so gorgeous. And then that there's a transition in the song where there's like a, what we 
like to call a flaming guitar solo, <laughs> the psychedelic rock kind of part of the song. And then it goes quiet and it just, it's, it's all of a sudden just little ar- arpeggios on the guitar. And I fucking love that moment very much. And then of course, like her voice is, her voice is so fascinating to me because it's so full of pain and emotion and it's amazing to listen to and it is not pretty at all. But it's it just has so much power in it. So anyway, I gave it a four. Micah. All right, I'm next. Oh, this one was really hard for me. I I enjoyed the song and oh, I God. love Janice Joplin. Oh great. Uh, oh oh. No, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I'm just kidding. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the classic rock stuff, which is funny because I'm I brought this person to the table tonight that is like a big influence on a lot of the classic rock stuff but i just get kind of tired of it partially because (laughs) of when i grew up and how much i was exposed to it and i i do enjoy a lot of it but it just kind of like david was saying with robert johnson it's like oh yep this is delta blues like this i heard it and i'm like oh yep this is a classic rock song um so i wasn't a big fan of the big brother and the holding company man (laughs) but um, that's their name now i'm sorry but janice's vocal performance is unbeatable i mean she's taking this song it's mind-boggling to me that the song has been recorded twenty-five thousand times like how do we even know that it's just crazy that it's been recorded that many times janice's version is i i say pretty confidently even amongst those twenty-five thousand versions completely unique and it's incredible she sounds like like she often does, like a 65-year-old woman that's been smoking all her life and is just squeezing out these lyrics through all this pain and suffering and experience. So I really want to give it a three and a half because the music itself was kind of boring to me. But I, I have to give it a four because Janet's Janice's vocal performance is so amazing. See, I'm actually sort of in the opposite field. I love the <laughs> band. I love the way the band's performing the song. It reminded me a lot of... If you've ever heard Nina Simone's You'd Be So Nice to Come Home To from Newport in 1960, mm-hmm. it's dual arpeggiated pianos in that very creepy tone that just builds and builds and builds and builds. It's that same minor crescendo that is different than what the original aria's intent is, that sort of jazz swing vocal to it. When I think of Janis Joplin, I think of songs like Peace of My Heart and Me and Bobby McGee. Mm-hmm. And in thinking about that, I think about the full-throated version of her voice. The falsetto did not hit me the right way because she's singing it entirely in falsetto and I kept wanting that full-throated Janice voice Mm. and it doesn't come. I like the fact that there is a specific reason for that, but it didn't hit me the way I wanted it to. And so in a subjective way, I was like, I think the band's killer. I think the band's (laughs) just incredibly good and... Not as psych rock freak out as some of these bands could get back then. They do restrain it in in a way that's a lot more like a jazz band in some in some respects. In thinking about it and thinking about the intention of it, I was going to do a three. I'm going to give it a three and a half because it's a subjective thing for me of wanting to hear the full Janice voice and never getting that, but not docking it too many more points. When this song came on, I was like, Oh, wait a minute, hold on. This is this is special. This is important and this is holy crap. This is amazing. 
I know the live version very well, which is why I made a point to ask you specifically what version you were talking about. The guitar solos are way more on the studio version. And I don't know if that's a an artifact of the production of a live record versus a studio record or a fact that I was listening to it on Spotify in 2019 versus on a CD in 1998. I take umbrage. Did I use that correctly? Uh, I'm fi- I, I would like to fight you on Her Voice Isn't Pretty. I think her voice is absolutely gorgeous. And it's hurt. And like it feels like it not only is full of pain, but also currently causing pain as she's singing. Like, uh, yikes. I think it's just really, really lovely. And like, I think it's so interesting to, so I give it a, f- I give it a four. And on that note, Mars Volta. Okay. So the music of this, of this big gigantic thing, there's stuff to talk about in re-listenability and that's, that's fine. I think that this is like a really fun dancey song. I think that it's bombastic in a very cool way. I think that it does, it is like a, uh, Ken, Burns version of loud, quiet, loud. Like it's like really, really loud and then quiet for a long time and then it comes back in and that comeback in is like, it, it, it's really nice. I think Cedric's voice sounds great. I think the guitar sounds great. I think that every, all the instruments sound wonderful together. I think that it's fun, um, to hear sort of their influences, uh, both of like Latin music and psychedelic and rock and punk and all this stuff sort of in a melange together. I love using that word melange. It's so fun. I want to read a quote here from the uncut review of the album. They gave it four stars out of five and said, Imagine a jam session between King Crimson, Fugazi, and 70s Miles. Now imagine it working. That's the Mars Volta. So (laughs) I'm going to give it a three and a half because I think that the music sounds really, 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 really great. Micah. All right. I'm also going to give it a three and a half. It's a lot in a lot of ways, even their shorter songs. And I'm not a huge fan. It's funny. I saw one thing say that they were a progressive rock band. And I thought that was kind of funny because I think of a totally different sound when I think of a progressive rock band. Um, And I don't like progressive rock. I'm not a huge fan of prog rock for a lot of reasons. But I do really like post-punk and post-hardcore and post-prog bands in small doses. And I really like the thing I wrote down, which is something my friends and I used to joke about when we went to, we had been going to punk shows for a long, long time. And then we started listening to these more like post-hardcore bands. And and every once in a while, these bands would have a song that had a lot of parts. And I'm doing little air quotes around parts because it just, it has a lot, it has almost movements. And what I really appreciated about this as I was listening to these four songs over and over in succession this week, this song gave me a minute to think about the other songs and compare them and think about other things and daydream and then realize, oh shit, no, there's still music going on. I did really like that. When I sat down and focused for 12 minutes, that's why I couldn't do that. But when I sat down and really listened, I do like songs that are loud and quiet and have a lot of slow and fast and and different things in small doses. So we'll get to re-listenability later, but, but I enjoyed it. And the music, like you said, there's so many intricate layers of things going on and so many soundscapes that he was creating that, yeah, I, I give it a three and a half. I gave it a three and a half. It is different than your normal prog song. It starts right in. It's abrupt. I dig at the drive-in a little better because there's a little mm-hmm. bit more oomph and drive to it. Um, 
I, I did break it down in the <laughs> movements as I listed. I was like, movement one, intricate yeah. indie puck explodes into a jam chorus. Movement two, we do a little prog meander. That's fine. That's a normal prog bridge. <laughs> Three, ah, oh, we get to early middle Pink Floyd influence. Somebody mm. listen to Echoes. Uh-huh. And this is this is where I take off the half a point for music and it starts to die for me. I dig that he's doing soundscapes, but we go three minutes with basically no actual music going on. Right. It's like a sculpture in the middle of the song. It, yep. It goes on long enough that you lose the thread. You actually lose the thread and the through line of the song. Mm-hmm. A minute of that? Cool. I'm down. But like even Pink <laughs> Floyd would roll that in and then punch it back to the music again. Because we punch into a Santana jam, which is fucking killer. And it's that middle that just drops out. Musically, it is incredible. I dock it a tiny bit there, and that's where a lot's going to come for me later. But I'm going to give it three and a half for music. All right. Well, so it's. I'll start with the Pink Floyd part, since you were just talking about that. Just because one of the notes I took was <laughs> during during the sort of like soundscape part, I was wrote that it sounded like a bunch of space sounds. And then I started thinking about how much I would love that if I were high. <laughs> oh, and then I was thinking, or it might totally freak me out. And it totally depends on the drug and the situation. I one time went to a Pink Floyd laser show on LSD. And um, it was great. And so that's the, that's the end of that story. But going back to the music, I, I picked out a few. There were just a few kind of specific things that I noticed that I really liked. I really dug the bass line and there was a lot of hi-hat, which I always like. There's a part, and I don't have any specifics on any of this, there's a part where they use dissonance in a really Mm. beautiful way, I thought. And the parts that really won me over were the parts where there's singing with more than one person. There's like, ah, or whatever. I don't remember how it goes. And like the ah ahs. I love that very much. Hearing your explanation of Jeremy Michael Ward and his contribution to the band and why you chose this song, it makes a lot more sense to me. I, I'm giving it 3.5. 0.5 because it wasn't it didn't quite work for me as an as a cohesive piece. Alright. On to lyrics. Start off with Kind Hearted Woman by Robert Johnson. Kind Hearted Woman by Robert Johnson. The lyrics, um, as you mentioned earlier, David, you hear this and you think, yep, that's Delta Blues. I like the progression of the lyrics and I like the way he performs them. There's not really a whole lot there in some ways. I think there are some interesting moments. I really like the way he sings them. I like his little hoo at times, but that's not really a lyric. And I think my favorite part is at the end when he kind of comes out with it and says she's a kind-hearted woman. She studies evil all the time. You was to kill me as to have it on your mind. I like that part, but the rest is kind of just standard. I love my baby, but she didn't love me. So I give the lyrics a two and a half. I actually give it a three. I found it a little bit different and darker than the normal lyrics. There's mm-hmm. there's something about the phrasing that he's using there. I got to that. I got a kind-hearted woman do anything in this world for me, but these evil-hearted women, man, they will not let me be. Mm-hmm. It's the way he's phrasing and putting those words together, which is a it's a little bit different than your your standard blues song. There's something there's something moodier underneath it. It's the um, devil. Yeah, it's the devil. Yeah, it probably is. <laughs> and there's that there's that pining element that you get in the blues, but it's relatable in a way. Like I it, it, sometimes it's very tropey and hacky when you hear it, and this is not that. There's something 
real soulful and deep to it. I give it a three because I would agree that it is a little bit of that standard, but it bucks against some of those normal tropes that you normally see with it. I loved the progression. Micah, you mentioned this earlier, but I love the progression of the lyrics from, you know, the opening, I got a kind hearted woman to the evil woman who is not only sleeping with someone else and calling out someone else's name, but also wants to kill him. I really enjoyed that. I thought there was an element of humor there that Mm -hmm. I liked. And he also refers to himself as Mr. Johnson. And I thought that was very funny. So uh, I gave it 3.5. So I love when artists refer to themselves in their songs. I love it so much. <laughs> like, or they'll refer like uh, uh, Bright Eyes often refers to the producer Mike. I love when it's like I wrote this lyric because I haven't been able to email Tim back, so I'm just gonna put this on the album, and it, he'll get the message eventually when he hears the song. <laughs> but I especially love it when they refer to themselves. Yeah. In especially like the third person. So like, yeah, I was going to bring up, you know, it makes Mr. Johnson drink. Mm-hmm. And then like that, that stanza ends with, you know, it breaks my heart when you call Mr. So-and-so's name. Yeah. Like it's, it's so specific into not specific. I really love like just even the most tropey blues. I really love a, like a good li- a rhyme. I really eat this up with just a, a fork and spoon, I guess is what people say i really like it a lot so i'm gonna give it a three and a half because i want i just want a little bit more please all right on to lyrics for king of the hill it's it's funny because this is both a pretty good representation of the kind of lyrics they wrote but also it's way longer than any of the other songs they've ever written (laughs) i mean i could point back to the punchline That's a typical Minutemen song. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It got more intricate. My favorite Minutemen lyrics of all time are Corona. Just the opening lines of the people will survive in their environment, the dirt, the scarcity, and the emptiness of our South. Like, it's basically punk haiku is what D. Boone would write in these songs. (laughs) There's an element of that in this song, but it's, like I said, it, it flows into that pop, that sort of commercial style that they were going with here it's funny because you know the opening lyrics it's it's so simple what is peace to the people who work the land and die in wars but it's it's these intro choruses i love the the pre-chorus where they're using this image of playing king of the hill and it was learned in a game that was played by us all who held the top of the hill from the rest was called the king and it's so indicative of their politics they were super working class i mean they came from dock workers in San Pedro, way more working class than any of the other punk rockers out there. The descendants were super suburban kids, but the Minutemen out of all of them came from the super working class and all of their songs respect that. And we get to this chorus, which I think is just insanely amazing. I can't believe it all was good for humankind and I have to read the lies between the lines. It's just 
really good poetry. It's, I try to say working class, not in an insulting way, but it's meant to be for an everyman to listen to. It's meant to target anyone who could listen to this to say like, pay attention. Why do we fight these things? Why do we keep trying to claw to this top of this game instead of, you know, maybe reading through it for half a second? And it's a manifesto and a a call to arms in some ways. Like I said, I don't think it's their best work. I think they've distilled that even further in some of their other songs, but I give it a three and a half. Micah. I gave the lyrics a three on this one, and I found them, I think, a little repetitive because, like you said, it's like twice as long as any of their other songs, so they just have to repeat it more. They weren't used to writing that many different words. Nope. (laughs) But I bumped back up to a three because basically because of my politics and how <laughs> they match so well and I like what they're saying. Fair enough. And I think I, I grew up listening to punk rock and hearing these these things that like you were talking about the audience for this, their intended audience. And I just think of it as like kids. They're trying to influence kids and get them to think like fucking think for yourself and realize what's going on and we got to fight back. I was reading a little bit earlier today and D Boone and Mike Watt were both like Navy brats, basically. Their dads were both in the Navy at one point, and they, I think that's how they ended up in San Pedro. Yeah. That was even more interesting to me that they're writing these anti war songs. And, and yeah, the working class, like, we got to look at it's all about capitalism and how it feeds this war machine. And has it really been good for, for humanity? It sounds really simple, though. And the, the rhymes are simple and the lines are, are, written in a simple way unlike a lot of punk rock it's really understandable coherent um, it's just approachable easy. it's it's up front the vocals are up front and they're supposed to be and it's it's a big part of the song they're not buried under a bunch of fuzzy guitars and stuff um and so i gave the lyrics a three cool okay well i think that their demographic is me because <laughs> um, and actually david when i Listen to this song, and then I looked at the lyrics. I was like, did David pick this on purpose because he knew it would win? David (laughs) knew I was going to give this a four. It's an anti-war song that is on the nose, but but somehow manages to stay away from being pandering or sentimental. It's classic political, like, punk politics. It's fucking take down the man and fuck capitalism, and I love it, and I gave it a four. Well said. I like the way you said that thank you and james thank you almost like even kids can understand this concept um so i really like that part i especially also like the line i really picked Mm. out was is it peace to point the guns is it war to fire the guns um because like i really like i mean the i like i like (laughs) questions that i'm like hey wait a sec that that might be what this song is about i really like an anti-war song too i don't know like each time I listened to it, I was like, oh, you know, I like this a little bit more. I like this a little bit more. I'm going to give it a four. Yeah. Okay. Jen, why don't you tell us your thoughts on the lyrics for Summertime? I think the lyrics are a very kind of classic blues, bluesy kind of song. I think that Janice, she added not a lot, but she changed a few words and added a few words. You know, the... The number of times that she says, no, 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 no. Mm. You know, I mean, she really extended the parts that I think are the most powerful. She also sings about cotton and how high the cotton it is and Lord so high. And we all know she's talking about weed Um, (laughs) or actually probably heroin, which is sadder than weed. So let's go with weed. 
But yeah, uh, I forgot to give this a rating. I'm just noticing right now. I kind of want to give it a high score because it's been, people have connected to it for such a long time. Also, it's about death is my interpretation of it, and particularly when Janice sings. Wait, I thought it was about summertime. Okay, honey. Just, you know, at the end, take to the sky, and anyway. I'm going to give it a three. I'm not going to try to explain any more about that. I'm next, and I'm going to give it a four, because, I mean, it's fucking Gershwin. Wow. And and that other guy you mentioned. Dubose Hayward. Dubose Hayward. Apparently a very underrated librettist. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give it a four, because... It's a standard. It's There's a reason it's a standard. There's a reason it's been recorded 25,000 times and interpreted by that many people. Yeah, I don't have much else to say about it. It's a four for me. I would say just because it's a standard doesn't necessarily make it great. What I think is an issue in this song is that the lyrics, especially that first section, don't make a whole lot of sense with Janice singing them. The second verse does. Mm, mm-hmm. Your interpretation of the idea of fading and death makes a whole bunch of sense as Janice sings it. That first part, because it is, I believe, in the show, an early song where they're establishing it's summertime, it's hot, everything's growing, and we're entering all these characters into the opera. With her, there's this disconnect that I feel there. And it's also just so hard to judge these because they have such a specific context in the show that they did. Yeah. Right. Outside of there, I'm missing that. I'm going to give it a three. Yeah. Uh, James. For me, it reminds me of, I, I'm not making a joke with what I'm about to say, but like summertime, like it, <laughs> like it, I think, it, I think it evokes, I think it evokes what it's trying to evoke. Mm-hmm. Um, Children of, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's also about death. I'm going to give them a four. Cool. On to the Mars Volta. Okay. So, <laughs> remember how we were talking about the context of the of the piece that it's from <laughs> and all that stuff? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. just a really quick thing. I know we're running along on time, but like I'm doing a 12-minute song, god damn it. <laughs> all right, so the whole album is this concept of this guy named Serpentaxed, who is a fictional character. He overdoses on uh, morphine and rat poison and goes into a coma. And the album is about what he sees in his coma. Um, and oh, then okay. it's also kind of based on this guy, uh, Julio Venegas, who was a friend of the band who jumped off a bridge. So Cedric is the lyricist and singer, and what he likes to do is just sort of make up lyrics right then as oh, he's recording, okay. which is a fun thing to have this huge backstory and book uh-huh, about uh-huh. these lyrics because, one, he just sang them like in the moment for the most part. And second, he wouldn't often make the same word choices from song performance to song performance. Okay. So, okay. so it's all these, all these like, they're talking about like how there's like a message board about this album and like all these people. These lyrics are wild. I'm going to give them a two and a half. Cool. So <laughs> I'm next. I just want to clarify really quickly before we get into this. The scale is from zero to four. Is that correct? Oh, wow. <laughs> correct. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I just want to take, just imagine that I said all the same stuff that James said, and I'm going to give them a one and a half Oof. because it's nonsense. <laughs> and I, I appreciate nonsense sometimes. Like I'm a big Beck fan, so I get the whole word salad thing and... I, I gave them the extra half point there 
and bumped him up a little bit because the way he sings the lyrics and delivers the lyrics sound it sounds important like he he really cares about this and something's going on i just don't know what it is <laughs> i i just couldn't do anything with the rest of it wow, so okay all right i'm going to invoke the macintosh and mod kubrick rule which is that <laughs> if i have to have context to explain the story to me mm-hmm. it's not very good and uh i can thank modcaster for that rule this is going to get a one out of four for me more that we talk about it it's all image but there's no meaning there's really interesting imagery, but what is that imagery for? And it just makes me want to know what you're talking about. My literal first line on my notes was, huh? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Jen. All right. Okay. So I'm going to say this and it's going to sound like I'm trying to be funny and I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying this as a joke, it, it, but it makes sense to me that your person died of a heroin overdose and that the other members of the band were also on heroin. Particularly as you are describing this whole context, which I think actually makes this so much more interesting. I appreciate it much more having heard that, even though, yes, by itself, it doesn't make any sense. My first thought about this was like, oh my God, these lyrics are so emo. Like, beyond the anthills of this, of this dawning of this plague, you know, like, but I also found them like, they are, they do create imagery i don't know i'm giving them a three james i am not i am i am wild gonna be way nicer because here's the thing is i don't feel like a song necessarily has to make sense why does it need to make sense i mean yeah sometimes it's nice when you (laughs) know what the fuck they're talking about but other times they just want to paint some weird imagery with some word salad all right let's do production the producer for robert johnson was named don law He's literally the only mm-hmm. one who ever recorded Robert Johnson, and then he had a whole country career after that. Notably, he covered he he recorded the Battle of New Orleans. What's that? Yeah, the Battle of New Orleans yeah. by Johnny Horton, which was a number one song in the '60s. So Don Law, his son was also named Don Law, which is a cool name. Mm-hmm. It is Big Brother and the Holding Company. That album was produced by John Simon, who also did a bunch of the stuff for the band. He did the first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, Child is the Father to the Man. He did songs of Leonard Cohen by Leonard Cohen. He was like the 60s (laughs) dude. He produced stuff by Frankie Yankovic. Yes, that Yankovic's dad. (laughs) And just all sorts of stuff in the 60s. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, he did bookends and stuff like that. So that's that guy. The Minutemen was Joe Carducci. He was associated with SST Records. He did a bunch of Minutemen production. Also, he did the birthday party. St. Vitus, The Meat Puppets, Black Flag, and Saccharin Trust. Oh, um, all of those are amazing bands. <laughs> so he did. He, that, he was that guy, and he wrote a book about SST called Entered Naomi, SST LA, and all that, which I really want to read. And then um, my guy was this guy named uh, Rick Rubin. So <laughs> I wanted to read the stuff that he did in 2003. Because I that was how he did everything. He made the Beastie Boys a rap group. He Run DMC. brought Johnny Cash back from the dead. This is what he was doing in, in 2003. He did the Jayhawks Rainy Day music, Mars Volta de Laos in the Comatorium, Limp Biscuit Results May Vary, To My Surprise by To My Surprise, Joe Strummer and the Mescalero Street Corps, Jay Z's The Black Album, Red Hot Chili Peppers Greatest Hits, Rage Against the Machine Live at the Grand Olympic Auditorium, Johnny Cash Unearthed, and Palo Alto's Heroes and Villains, and Krishna Das's Door of Faith. And man-made gods, man-made god. That was just his 2003, yeah, yeah, So, yeah, he's done a lot of stuff. If you've heard of it, you've heard of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. 
All right, Robert Johnson. I would say compared to what we think of as production now, there wasn't a whole lot of production involved um, in this recording of Robert Johnson. It was basically just a recording. They rented some rooms in a hotel. They had one ribbon mic. They had a record lathe, which is exactly what it sounds like. They carved a record as he played, and that was the master. I will say that there have been several versions released of his recordings. The The first that were widely released was the 1961 King of the Delta Blues. There's a complete recordings that came out, a box set on CDs that came out in the 90s, I believe. The Centennial Collection or the Centennial Edition released by Sony is what you should listen to if you're interested in Robert Johnson at all. It's It's a little noisier. There's a lot more scratches and hisses, but there's not they didn't do the noise reduction that exists on the other recordings, and you lose a lot of fidelity on those recordings. They sound a little cleaner, and they're easier to listen to, maybe, but it's not all there anymore. As far as production goes, there's one interesting story that Robert Johnson played facing the corner, and they think that he probably did that for the sound, so that it would that that one ribbon mic would pick up more of the sound and give it kind of give the recording more space. And I think it worked because it sounds pretty amazing for a recording made way back then. You can hear a lot of the guitar and his voice just from that one mic. So I gave production a two on this one. I actually gave it a three. Is it great production? No. But the sound of it is so iconic. Mm-hmm. And it's it sounds like an echo, like a ghost is singing it in some ways. <laughs> and it's all him. I mean, he's producing it himself. They're just setting up a microphone in a studio. So he's got to figure that out. The fact that he pointed himself in a corner to get the music to sound that way, it's really good for what they were recording at the time. I mean, it just is. And the fact that it's lasted this long and been such an iconic thing is a testament to the the small choices he made to get the recording to sound that way. I went for a three on this. Okay, lightning round. I have nothing to say about production. I give it a 100. What? <laughs> no, wait, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> wait, wait. Oh, sorry. Three. All right. So I gave it a two and a half. I think that if you have to say which version, that's a little bit telling about the original production, but I think that that version you told us, Micah, sounds really, really great. And maybe that's been the problem with my listening to Robert Johnson up until now. I think that the fact that you can hear, like, like they had to turn it way up. So like you can hear like it's you have that like hiss of it being turned way up in the background doesn't hurt it at all. So I gave it a two and a half. All right, moving on to Minutemen. This is the cleanest they've ever sounded on purpose. For me, the the biggest thing on the production is that trumpet. Like the the <laughs> choice to add that into that song really sells it in so many different ways. It's not perfect, but it is such a new direction that they could have run with on this. And intentionally or not, it made their sound accessible in a way that had they progressed further, they could have been as big as R.E.M., who they toured with. They could have been as big as Guided by Voices or The Replacements. Had they kept going in this direction with this style of production, they could have moved even further past the hardcore label that they did and get to make the sort of pure punk idea that they wanted to do. So I gave it a three and a half. All right. Minimen for production, I gave it a three. Like you were saying, it sounds really clean for them. It's Again, it's really simple in a lot of ways and efficient and economical. And I like the way they did that, but it sounds good. And just those drums. I mean, the drums 
sound so good. I You can listen to a lot of punk records that were produced by big name producers who, you know, work in studios where they're paying thousands of dollars an hour to record and the drums don't sound quite as good as on this track. They just, the drums sound so good on this <laughs> and it's hard to do. Jen. I had a long explanation prepared for this, but in the, you know, in this, for the sake of time, I'm just going to say three. <laughs> I gave it a four because I think it sounds awesome. And if they were as DIY, even like it sounds like a good punk rock recording in a studio, like you were saying, that was that, you know, was a pretty, you know, mid-level recording studio. And if and if the quality of anything was any less than that, then that ramps up my score. So I'm going to give it a four. Janice. Janice. Okay, production. Let me just read through all my notes on production here. I have several paragraphs. I'm just going to say a three. <laughs> I love your defiance <laughs> of this category. <laughs> I'm also giving Summertime a three on production because it sounds good, but there's nothing that stands out really about it to me. I mean, the, musically, there are things that stand out in the vocal performance, but it just sounds like a lot of things sounded to me back mm -hmm. then uh, in terms of production. So a three. I'll give it a three and a half. I think whoever produced the album understood that these guys were a live band and needed to sound like a live band, mm. even in a studio. First of all, it's clear that this guy has production talent because he'd worked with huge names. I mean, the fact that he worked with Leonard Cohen on that song's Leonard mm -hmm. Cohen album is pretty big deal. Um, I think he captures the rambling live vibe that that band had. Mm -hmm. And all, all he had to do was just set the mics, get it leveled the right way and be like, y'all play because that's, that's the whole thing. The whole way you're supposed to sound is how you'll sound. I, I do agree with the not adding anything special, but I bump it up an extra half point to a three and a half for that. Mm -hmm. I gave it a four because I love this song and I didn't think it could get any better than the live album. I love the way that everything sounds. I think that it all works really great. I can hear every note and I can hear every everything that she's doing and the guitar sounds super awesome and, 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 and killer. So I gave it a four. Finally, on to Mars Volta. Uh, I gave it a four originally, but then I bumped it down to a three and a half because it almost feels like Rick Rubin could have told them to delete maybe maybe two or three minutes of middle stuff. I think it sounds great, and I think that it could have been a gigantic mess for especially for as long as it is. I think all the stuff sounds really good together, and I think it sounds really nice. So I gave it a three and a half. I gave it a four for production because that's a lot of what I think this song has going for it is. It does, there's a lot going on, and it's really well balanced in term in some ways. <laughs> um, and I think the the ways that it's not well balanced or not as cohesive that we talked about have more to do with the songwriting and some of the other aspects that maybe I don't put on Rick Rubin as much. I think they're doing a lot of things there that are very as far as craft goes. There's a lot compared to what. Robert Johnson was was doing <laughs> like this is a four for me because it's just a lot of work and it's well done I'm gonna give it a three no one told them no no <laughs> <Yeah>. one told <laughs> them and I mean that is part of a producer's job a producer's job is to know when to step in and be like this is great yeah. but at some point we've got to get back to the thread and like I said one of my biggest problems is you lose the thread in the middle of the song mm -hmm. I need to come back to that, to whatever main melody you're going to do faster so that I can stay connected. 
if you stay in that soundscape for like three and a half minutes, eventually I lost all the momentum you've generated up to that point. That's one of the reasons I really enjoyed like Relationship of Command and At the Drive-In mm. was because they kept those things tight. Yeah, yeah, they were all over the place, but they kept the songs tighter and they didn't stray too far off the theme before they came back to it. The sound is really good. I mean, I can't fault it for that. It's just they didn't put any restraint on it whatsoever, and it just loses the thread for me. So I'm going to go three on that. And Jen? I've given this a lot of thought, and mm-hmm. I am I was thinking a lot about that Omar-Rick connection and all of that, and so I'm going with a three. All right. Re-listenability. <laughs> Micah, let's start with Robert Johnson. Re-listenability for Kind Hearted Women Blues. I could listen to this song over and over and over. And I think this isn't fair, but there's a an alternate take of Kind Hearted Women Blues where he changes some of the words and stuff. And it just, it makes it more interesting to go back and listen to this one. It is a, a fairly short song. There's not a lot there in some ways. The guitar's crazy. I love the way he sings it. But it's also for our modern ears. We're not used to listening to things with such so much noise in the background. And so it's a little distracting. I got used to it pretty quickly and I was able to to listen to it, but I know that could bother some people. So I gave it a three. I give it a two and a half because it's not my go-to for Delta Blues. For whatever reason, Robert Johnson just has never, his actual versions of his songs have never captured my attention that much. And it's it's nothing other than a preference issue. But it's I'm not going to go to him straight away. If I think about the blues, I'm going to go to Sunhouse. I'm going to go to BB King. I'm going to go to Buddy Guy. And I'm going to go to Muddy Waters. And if I'm going way back, yeah, it's always Sunhouse over this for me. So I'm going to go two and a half for me. Okay. I I enjoy this song. And it's the kind of song that we do listen to fairly often. And it makes me think of like <clears throat> Sunday afternoons, like rainy afternoons. We'll usually Micah will put this on Uh, so i'm giving it a three it's a little bit hard to listen to on my ears but but i do enjoy re-listening to it um i like this song a lot and i i could listen to it i sometimes fall into a trap in re-listenability where a song like i said i I would love for this to be twice as long and that'd be great for me so i fall into a trap of re-listenability where it's like yeah i'd listen to this over and over again because it leaves me wanting more and so it's like it's short and it like i want more of it so i listen to it again over and over again that does bump it up on re-listenability. On Minutemen, I mean, I love this song. I love all the Minutemen songs. This is not one of my go-tos, but I love the build-up to this chorus. I love how it's propelling forward, it's building up, and then it's just this sort of anthem explosion there. Um, I gave it a three and a half. I gave it a four. I love this song. I plan to listen to it many more times, and I plan to listen to Minutemen a lot more. I love um, it! So that's a four for me. I gave it a three i think that i i have the same actually feeling about it as i do about that robert johnson song where it's like yeah all right cool i get it and i want more of it the only problem is that i think that a political song like this can sort of get a little bit like staler just a tad faster so i gave it a three i gave the minimum a three on this one i really like this song i could listen to it over and over and over but it is a little repetitive in ways and the you know as much as i love the drums i don't love the vocal performance as much it's cool to listen to a couple times, but for me, it gets a little repetitive and boring. But I, I really like those drums again, and of course, the bass <laughs> guitar. So it's a fun song. All right, on to James Chaplin. I have listened to this song very many times. I'm giving it a 3.5 because 
I don't actually love the guitar solo in the middle all that much, but the reason I don't listen to it more often is because it's it's just so dark and it's very moving to me and kind of connects very personally to me. So 3.5. I also gave it a 3.5. I think it's her vocal performance is just so interesting to me. And I think I like it so much because it's not the typical Janis Joplin full-throated belting it out. I, I like that, and I like the pain that comes through. I go three. It's not going to be my first choice, either for her or for kind of a jazz standard, but it's one of those songs that if it came up on a playlist randomly, yeah. I'm not yeah. going to shuffle it away. Mm-hmm. It's really, <laughs> yeah. really good. It's yeah. just one of those that I'm not thinking about going to it straight away. Mm-hmm. So I give it a three. I gave it a three and a half. Uh, I love listening to it. And the only reason why I wouldn't just put it on repeat and just like live my whole life to it (laughs) is because I would want to listen to other Janis Joplin songs. (laughs) For me, this is a great, great song and I love it very much. Uh, I just, it makes me want to listen to other songs by her. And that's why I gave it a three and a half. Mars Volta. Here, here's the title fight. I'm going to start by saying I gave it a three and that's going to be it. God, if, if, there's no way. There's no way that anyone is going to beat that. That's just what I'm throwing down right now. I think this is more re-listenable if you're listening to the whole album. If you know the whole album, you sort of know this thing's piece in it, and that kind of makes it a little more easy to swallow. If this is your first Mars Volta album or song, boy, whoever did that to you is just is just really, really not thinking ahead. And it's sort of like when you're driving to a place that you've never been versus when you're driving back home from that place, it seems shorter to go back home because you know what you're going to see and you're gradually getting more and more familiar with the area and stuff. That's sort of how this song feels. So I gave it a three because I understand it's definitely not the most re-listenable song of all time. All right. You're going to be surprised, James, but I actually gave it a three and a half um, for re-listenability. <laughs> no, I like I don't mind long songs at all. I think this one I I said it before. I like songs with a lot of parts and this song has the parts. I actually honestly do like songs that give me a break sometimes, especially when they're 12 minutes long where mm-hmm. I can zone out a little bit and then realize, "Oh yeah, I'm still listening to mm-hmm. music." That sounds like I'm not paying attention at all, but no. it's almost like no. there's it, there's like this ambient yeah, music breakdown in the middle and then it comes back and it comes back really strong and i like that i could listen to this for a long time as long as i don't think about those lyrics too much i could listen to the guitar i could listen to him the way he delivers the lines i yeah i give it a three and a half i could listen to this over and over and over and find something new every time uh one and a half ouch we lose that thread again it's invoking the cubic rule if if (laughs) i've got to have context to understand and explain where we're going with it and you've dropped me in the middle of it, which is part of the problem I have with the song. I, why I can get along with, you know, an Echoes, which takes about 20, 25 minutes to get through, is because it slowly builds up over time. It starts soft, it goes through phases, and it builds over the course. This whole album, I feel, would do that. Mm-hmm. This song doesn't. It immediately starts, then we go into a lull, and then we come back into the song. And as a song by itself, it doesn't work that way. It's part of a larger piece. And so because of that, it immediately jarred me into thinking, well, at some point we're going to get back to this, but we didn't and we didn't. And eventually, by the time we did, I was like, I didn't need this entire section right here. (laughs) I just didn't need it. The eight minutes Um, in the middle. 
It's just it it there's no reason for it to be there other than just to have some whooshy noises. And so for me, one and a half. All right. Well, I ha- I was going to give it a two, but honestly, I've been thinking a lot more about it throughout this conversation, and I'm going to bump it up to a 2.5 because uh, this has generated some curiosity in me, and I, I think that I will go back and listen to it again, at which point I might come back and tell you that it's a zero, but for now, let's say 2.5. <laughs> Special category. Robert Johnson. I have a joke answer for this, and I have my real answer, and I'm going to kind of come down in the middle on those. My joke answer is, as far as potential goes and what Robert Johnson could have done, the deal he made was he sold the soul to the devil to become the world's greatest guitarist. He achieved that, and so he had zero potential. He was already at maximum Robert Johnson (laughs) guitar player, so he gets a zero. But in terms of what he could have done if he had lived on and the influence he would have had. He was doing things that people are still trying to figure out 60, 70, 90 years later. And I think he was doing things not just with a guitar, but with almost sampling other musicians' music and pulling it all together to create his own thing. I'm going to give him, I think, a two and a half for that. And I'm not really sure how to justify that. But I think if we're talking about legacy and influence, he's like a four for me. But I think he was just playing guitar he just loved playing the fucking guitar and he played the shit out of it i don't think he was thinking much about passing on wisdom or expressing certain other things he was having a good time playing guitar and juke joints and drinking poisoned bottles of liquor i don't know if that makes any sense at all no it does it makes a lot of sense i think based on that i'd go two and a half as well that it's it i mean part of it is just so hard to judge with him specifically, especially because of the mysterious circumstances that are there. And it's, you know, he's recorded these things. He's played the guitar. He's played this Mississippi Delta blues, you know, based on the, the marching along a time, it's just hard to know whether he would have been rediscovered or not. So I think there's, there's an element of magic there, but I think it's, it's, since it's so hard to tell a two and a half makes a lot of sense. So when I listened to your intro originally, I kind of, interpreted this differently so um, and that is cool go for it well i basically was thinking of it as like wisdom beyond their years kind of more than what they could have accomplished so because of that i i i gave robert johnson a four yeah like i think he had wisdom beyond his years Uh, and i also don't really know how to justify that but i also i also just love the story about him selling his soul to the soul of the Mm -hmm. devil and uh I'm just kind of fascinated by him as a person, so I'm going with four. I gave him a three and a half, because the further back you go, the harder it is to extrapolate forward from events and like know what would have what would have been. I think about what if someone else had produced him, what if he had collaborated with someone or played you know had had a drummer or you know like had any sort of backing band or whatever what would what would that have sounded like? with him sort of at the dawn of the thing, he could have been like an elder statesman and he could have, you know, he could have worked with a bunch of people in the forties and fifties and really done some amazing stuff based on how amazing his potential was. So I gave him a, a three and a half. All right. On to Miniman and D Boone. I mean, Boone was the powerhouse in the heart of the band and he and Mike Watt, when you hear Mike Watt talk about him, it, it's even more than like a brother. It's like a part of his heart got ripped out when he died. They were so close. They were basically the same person on stage. 
there's also a ton of charm that he had. You know, it's just something really charming about a dude who is a a bigger dude with a big beard, kind of scruffy and not the most like cool punk rock guy in the universe. But this guy would bounce all over the stage constantly. If you see live videos of them, he would jump up and down, hammer his guitar and like pogo across the stage as they would play these songs. And he was he's just amazing. There's so many bands that owed their careers to their style. They didn't personify lo-fi, but lo-fi really took cues from them to be able to experiment. They weren't as hardcore as their label mates. But I mean, the fact that Black Flag and Henry Wallens went into jazz experimentation owes a lot to these guys. They were label mates and they saw what they were doing. And I mean, Rollins and the Hooskers and a bunch of them were on Minutemen songs later on because they were like, these guys are amazing. <laughs> and hell, the Chili Peppers wouldn't have gotten where they were. Flea was all over this band. He's in the documentary. He knew about the Pedro sound. There's no way to know what we where they could have gone other than Mike Watt immediately started a band about 87 called Firehose, which has sort of a more jangly feel to them. But I think with him being such a working class earthy dude who was very much into politics and with them taking this this range without having that full spectrum of time, I gave him a three and a half because I think they could have been one of these really unique special bands that sort of broke out and did something really interesting and that there's such wisdom in his lyrics already at 27 that with even more time, what does he come up with? I gave them, uh, or I gave D Boone a three for this wisdom potential thing for a lot of the same reasons you were talking about. I think he and Mike Watt, you can, you can hear them like playing off each other and finishing each other's musical sentences. (laughs) Like they were just so in sync and seeing what they would do after would have been interesting. And honestly, I don't like the Firehose stuff nearly as much as the Minutemen stuff. It's it's not as interesting to me. And I think having the two of them continue their exploration of bringing in jazz elements and other elements into this punk hardcore scene, um, yeah, I think that would have been really interesting. And they were, a lot of these bands were like, they were seminal. They were there at the beginning of this scene and they were a huge influence and I think the Minutemen fit into that perfectly. And D Boone was a huge part of that. I did a three. I'm going to go with a 3.5 because I think I, I don't know enough about this person to, to give a four. And I, I think that there could have been a, a, a future for him and possibly the band in politics. And I don't mean as a politician. I mean, as a person who as activists, I guess is what I mean. Um, so yeah, 3.5. I think it's always really interesting to see punks get old. They, they go either like 19 forever. I'm never going to die. Or they grow into their brains and the, and the fastness of, of what they want to do. If you, if you are that young and you're thinking about things in this way, the wisdom moves into the potential that he had. So I gave him a three, a little bit lower than I might have because I guess I sort of docked points for the what ifs. I gave him and them a three. Okay. Janice. Janice. Okay. Well, so it's still difficult for me to think of her as only 27. Mm-hmm. Listening to her, even photographs of her, she just had, I mean, she lived hard for one thing. She lived very hard. And so on, on one hand, I'm like, okay, so if she would have gotten sober, what could she have done 
And I think she could have been amazing. But I also think that she was a person who had so much wisdom. Like, I think that part of the reason, I think that she saw through bullshit. It's hard for me to imagine her not burning out in this way. Mm. I, 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 yeah. I don't know. So I, for wisdom, I would say four. And I don't know as far as potential. So I'm going to go with three. All right. I gave her a four. I was thinking similar things. I think at what you were. Yeah, I give her a four because she's Janis Joplin and she was so influential. And part of it, honestly, she's the only woman we're talking about tonight. And I think she was the only woman in the room Damn at a right. lot of a lot of the shows she was in. She was the only woman like in the band. She she fought hard and she played hard and she performed hard. And um, yeah, I, I give her a four. Yeah, if we were talking about like impact and right. and and like. Uh, particularly like impact as far as the 20, the, <laughs> anyway, never mind. I'm so tired. I can't get my <laughs> thoughts straight anymore, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I would have given her a four for sure for that. I'm gonna go, let me go three and a half just for the feeling of struggle that was there. And the fact that it, it feels like there should be no reason why we couldn't have had more time with her. Hmm. Right. The impact and, and the soulfulness that they had, it feels like a shame to have lost that. I gave her a four as well. Like the memoir alone that we didn't get of like the 60s would have been just an absolute holy crap. But like if she'd been like a Marianne Faithful sort of deal where she had like a resurgence in on a Metallica song or like, you know, like who knows what she could have done being Janis Joplin in... 1993 or whatever the potential for what she could have done given what she did do in such a short time is pretty mind-boggling her impact sends ripples into the potentialities of her future and so i I gave her a four for the mars volta i i sort of it's sort of like i said the further back you go the more it's like a what if sort of situation jeremy died in 2003 so i mean like maybe what if whatever he could have been become a huge EDM star or whatever. I feel like he he was on the verge of of doing some great 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 things, and he sort of got cut off maybe even a little bit before he might have done more. So I gave him a three for cicatrices. I still don't know how to say it. Um, and for Jeremy, I think I gave him a two and a half. And some of this isn't fair because I'm not as familiar with the Mars Volta and with that that scene. Um, but I do feel like the other artists we talked about were seminal artists in their genres and in their moment. And they're, they were very experimental and they're doing very interesting things, but also a lot of the stuff they were doing was kind of derivative of other things that had happened before. So I don't know how far you can take the experimental vocal manipulator or whatever he is and have it be something that's influential or um, maybe he would have moved into production or maybe he would have done something else. But yeah, I gave him a two and a half. Yeah, I don't. I, I think Micah summed it up pretty well. Two and a half for me. Yeah, agreed. We have a winner and a loser. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost again. So that's fun. Mars Volta came in with 56 points. In third place with 61 and a half points, it was Robert Johnson. And then our second place with 69 nice points was the Minutemen. Which means that with 71.5 points, we have Janis Joplin. 
Which means I don't have to eat my shoelace because I did make a silent bet to myself that if Janis Joplin didn't win, I would eat my shoelace. Wasn't as sure a bet as last week, but this week I was pretty, I was pretty sure. Jen and Micah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This Thank was such you a great so conversation. Much for having us. Yeah. If people want to find more about you guys or listen to you on the wonderful wide world of the internet, where can they find you? They can find us. We have a website, which is just I never saw that.com. I am on Twitter at never saw that pod. I'm also on Instagram at I never saw that. We're on iTunes and all those other places. And I am at Micah Shelton on Twitter. And go ahead and at me. I like being added at. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what that means. I'm waiting for someone to do it just once. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start sending you at at. Yes. <laughs> um, I am also a co-host of I Never Saw That with Jen. And we talk about things from the 90s and stuff that she missed when she was off somewhere else in Montana. Yep. Mm-hmm. For reasons. You have to listen to find out. Yeah, listen to find out. <laughs> And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Big Mackinpod, and you can find our podcast at TrackMeetCast. And I am at Unabashed James on Twitter. All right, so until next time, hashtag song fight. Song fight.